I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So Hot Milk, when I decided to commit myself to that title, I knew that probably everyone in this room has a queasy association with Hot Milk. I finished the book in Italy and I asked a group of Italians what that title triggered for them. And one man said, nuns. Because when he was at junior school in Italy, uh, when the boys were sick, the nuns used to put a spoonful of grappa into the warm milk. And the boys got a bit drunk. So they used to, they used to be kind of ill and feverish and they loved the grappa and the milk. And I, that idea of the sort of virginal nuns sort of giving out, intoxicating milk to the boys <laughs> was quite, a, was quite a, um, happy association with the book. And for those of you who, who have read it, uh, you will know that amongst other things, hot milk also refers to the, the Milky Way, the, the galaxy, the Milky Way. So when I was writing it, a quote from James Baldwin really stuck with me. I'm a great fan of his work. And it goes, people cling to their hates so stubbornly because once hate is gone, they will, they will be forced to deal with their pain. And I thought I could flip that because my subject, one of my subjects in hot milk is hypochondria. So that one of the reasons people cling to their symptoms so stubbornly is because once they're gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And it's not really they, it's we. Because if we look at a subject like hypochondria, <laughs> we either are one or we have one in our family or we know someone else. But what interested me about that, that subject is something that Lacan said, which is that the hypochondriac is asking a question he or she doesn't want answered. I didn't quite understand, it is Lacan after all, I didn't quite understand that quote, some people call Lacan Le Kant, but, um, but I sort of did. 
one of the things about hypochondria is that the patient, that's us, presents a symptom, and if the physician gets anywhere near a diagnosis, uh, that's horrific to the hypochondriac because they're going to be fixed in a story, fixed in a narrative that it can't get out of. So as a writer who writes narratives and mucks about with narrative, that was fascinating to me. And another symptom, a much more flamboyant and mysterious symptom, will be presented. So any work on the body is bound to be full of strangeness. An example of this is that I've just flown back from New York and in the line, in the queue at JFK, they now have a sort of machine as you check into security where they swab, swab your hands. And this was new to me. I hadn't seen that before. And there was an African-American man standing behind me. He was talking to his friend. We'd all just been sort of had this done to our hands. And he's, he was saying to his friend, and I, I was listening in, you know, I have real problems with my fingertips. Uh, it's because I, I, I've been a diver. I did a lot of diving. But the thing is, when I get nervous, I get these little bumps on my fingertips. And um, it sort of makes me feel guilty of something I haven't done. So there we go. We're already in a, in a really strange zone. So hot milk is set in uh, the south of Spain, the semi-desert of European desert of Spain and Almeria in 2015. Sofia Papisteriades is 25. Her mother is 64. Her mother uh, has some kind of on and off paralysis in her limbs. Sometimes she can walk, sometimes she can't. And they've come to Spain to visit a clinic called the Gomez Clinic. And Sophia is born in Britain. She has, an, her father is Greek. Her father walked out of the home when she was five. So she has a name, she has a sort of cultural identity that she can't carry very easily. She has to carry her father's identity, but she knows nothing about him. So I give her that problem right from uh, the go. Uh, her mother is from Yorkshire. And so Rose Kathleen Booth became Rose Papisteriades. It's always very hard to know where to begin in a reading. I'm just beginning 41 pages in with Sophia and her mother and it's night. Tonight, someone is tapping at the windows of our beach apartment. I have checked twice and no one is there. It might be the seagulls or the wind blowing sand from the beach. When I look in the mirror, I do not recognize myself. I am tanned. My hair has grown longer and wilder. My teeth look whiter against my dark skin. My eyes seem bigger, brighter all the better to cry with, because my mother is shouting at me, shouting things like, you haven't tied my shoelaces properly. Every time I run to kneel at her feet, put her, to kneel, sorry, every time I run to kneel at her feet and tie them again, they come undone until I finally sit on the floor, put her feet on my lap 
and untie all the old knots to make new knots. It was a long process of unpicking and unraveling and starting all over again. I asked her why she needed to wear shoes at all, especially shoes with laces. It was night and she wasn't planning to go out. I can think better in shoes with laces, she said. She is reclining on a chair, staring at the whitewashed wall while I attend to her feet. If she let me turn the chair, she would be staring at the night stars. It would be the smallest movement to change her view, but she is not interested. The stars seem to insult her. Every one of them offends her. She tells me she already has a view in her mind. It's of the Yorkshire walls. She is walking the trail. The grass is lush and springy. Rain falls softly on her hair. It is the lightest rain and she has a cheese roll in her rucksack. I would like to do that walk with her in the Yorkshire Wolds. I'd be happy to butter the rolls and read the map. She half smiles when I tell her this, but it's as if she has already forsworn her feet to someone else. I'm nervous tonight. I can still hear someone tapping at the windows. It might be the mice that hide in the wall. You are always so far away, Sophia, my mother says. The tapping might be my father. He has come to look after my mother and give me a break. It might be a refugee who has swum to shore from North Africa. Is there water in the fridge, Sophia? I'm thinking about the signs on the doors of toilets in public places that tell us who we are. Gentlemen, ladies, are we all of us lurking in each other's sign? Get me water, Sophia. I'm thinking about the way Ingrid held her phone out towards the waves. She said, I'm on the beach, Matty. Can you hear the sea? While she spoke to her boyfriend, she had placed her foot on the inside of my right thigh just above my knee. She had thrown her shoes onto the seaweed where they swayed like small boats as the tide came in. The salty mineral smell of the dark, free-floating weed was enticing and intense. I'm on the beach, Matty. Can you hear the sea? The sea with all the Medusa jellyfish in it the sea that soaked her blue velvet shorts. I continue to unknot the old knots in my mother's laces and make new knots. There's definitely someone tapping on the windows. This time it's not so much a tap as a hard knock. I move my mother's feet from my lap and walk to the door. Are you expecting a visitor, Sophia? Nope. Yes. Maybe. Perhaps I am expecting a visitor. Ingrid Bauer is wearing silver Roman sandals that lace up her shins, and she's annoyed. Zofi, I have been knocking forever. I didn't see you, but I was here. She tells me 
that she's been talking over my situation with Matthew, her boyfriend. What situation? About having no transport. This is the desert, Sophie. He has suggested he collect the car from the Gomez Clinic for you tomorrow. Oh, it would be good to have a car. Let me see your jellyfish sting, Sophie. I rolled up my sleeve and showed her the purple welts. They were beginning to blister. She traced the sting with her finger. You smell like the ocean, she whispered, like a starfish. Her finger was now in the crease of my armpit. Those little monsters really came after you. She asked for my mobile number and I wrote it on the palm of her hand. Next time, Zoffie, open the door when I knock. I told her I never lock the door. Our beach house is dark. The walls are thick to keep it cool in the summer heat. We often have the lights on in the day as well as night. Not long after Ingrid left, all the lights suddenly went out. I had to stand on a chair and open the fuse box on the wall near the bathroom to flip the trip switch. I can't live like this. I must flip the trip in every way. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. I'm sort of in love with this novel and, and have read it through but need to read it a couple more times because it's something about, I don't know, the world that, that you've created. Just It sounds incredibly trite, but it reminds me why I love to read fiction. And I was just saying to you outside, I'm coming through a period of having had some problems with fiction and felt like, you know, I think about what Sheila Hetty said in an interview with a believer, like she just couldn't be bothered to make up characters and give them names and put them in situations and make them do things, you know. And I totally got that as, as a writer and as a reader. It's like, oh, God. And then Joe went down to the store and saw Mr. whatever. And, you know, so but but then I read a book like Hot Milk and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we love fiction. And that's why we why, you know, I personally devoted my life to you know reading and writing writing fiction and writing about fiction. So I guess, you know, my first question to you is, this is your first novel after Swimming Home. Why return to the novel and what is the novel doing for you? What is a novel for? Why read novels? Why write them? <laughs> Why can't we break our addiction to the novel? I think I'm getting on that Eurostar. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I thought you were going to say after Swimming Home, why have you set it in the sun again? Well, <laughs> I, I, I know how you love to swim and you love to I do. Sun. Everyone asks me that. And I think the, the sort of darker the material, the bluer the sky. <laughs> so I don't really use weather as an um, emotional metaphor. You know, uh, Swimming Home. God. At one point I was describing Swimming Home as a page turner about sorrow. <laughs> And uh, there are no grey skies, you know, there are no thunderstorms when somebody's going to die. So what's the novel for? Well, for me, I think really the only thing I want from a novel these days um, are ideas. I don't really care how well and crafted a novel is if there are no ideas that interest me. So, so the mind of the novel the mind sort of driving the novel, has to really have its attention on a place and problems and beauty, on everything. But it has to, it has to, it has to interest me. So where the attention 
is, is much more important really than a well-crafted sentence, although hopefully we can sort of whip it all up, whip up a storm <laughs> with, with all of them. Um, the other thing in this phase of writing is um, I, I discovered that my own reading has gone, is really quite strange. I find it quite difficult to read. There's so many, life's so busy, there's so many great movies. Why is that? You know, if, if I'm finding it difficult to read, maybe we meet in two years' time and I say, you know, I've just been reading nonstop. We, you know, it changes, doesn't it? It's not sort of set out the way we read and how we read. So I find that fiction has to really grab my attention quite quickly. And I find then, as a writer, that's on my mind. People sometimes sort of misunderstand my work and they think I'm not interested in plot. <laughs> as if plot is, some, is, is, is something that sort of straight writers do. I'm very interested in plot. I do want to know what's going to happen next. I do want to also be slightly mystified. I don't need to be told everything all the time. There is this sort of chase for coherence in the current commercial market for fiction, which is that, you know, a sort of terror of there being some, some <laughs> there being any kind of mystery in a book or, or even a character being confused. One of the things about Sophia Papisteriadis is that I wanted to make a space for a 25-year-old who isn't out there selling herself, knowing where she's heading, writing down her goals. I wanted to make a space for someone who's quieter and thoughtful and not quite bold enough, and who, who makes mistakes, who experiments with life, who gets it wrong, gets it right, all of that stuff. Uh, so that's what the novel is for. As a character, uh, characters, I need characters if I'm not writing mm. essays, which I love to write. Characters are the avatars that embody my arguments. That's what they are. And characters, I know that writers don't, don't usually talk about character like this, but, but character, characters are also a sort of behavior. You know, characters behave in a certain kind of way. And so that's very interesting to me as I write. And then there's another level of character, which, you know, as well as serving the story or detouring or sort of digressing, making a, interrupting the story, uh, there's a sort of shamanic aspect of creating character which I don't even think I can really talk about. You know, that, that moment when it's going well in the writing and uh, they just start to say things. They really do. I mean, I know I'm saying them, but it's, it's, it sort of surprised me. And one other thing about character is that I find that if I'm encouraging readers to dislike a character, uh, it always goes wrong. The character always becomes two-dimensional. And actors who play baddies know that, in a sense, they are the most complicated, they are the most complicated characters in a, in a, in a film or in a play. 
So I find that when a character that I do want to encourage you to kind of like less than another or, or identify with less than another or whose values I dislike, when they suddenly, suddenly do something that makes me, makes me feel some kind of compassion for them. This is really peculiar. Like, like Sophia's father, there he is in the book. He's, he's walked out on, on her when she was five. She goes back to Athens. She hasn't seen him for 11 years. She goes back to see him. And he is what he is. And then suddenly, lo and behold, he slips his hand into a glass where there's some paper napkins and he starts to fiddle about with them. He makes a flower. They're not a very good flower or anything, you know. I thought, why is he doing that? <laughs> it's four o'clock. I think I'd better, you know, go and have a cup of coffee. And suddenly I know that I have tuned him. I haven't quite tuned him right. And suddenly he's coming out right. We're going to have to work that because that's an odd thing, isn't it, to do, to, <laughs> to have a character do. So we're going to have to tune the reality levels of that. We're going to have to finesse it and, and get you to believe it. And I have to believe it first. So um, that's a very interesting, an action and a character is, is very, so very just interesting. Came out. You were writing and suddenly the character's mm. making paper flowers. It wasn't working, it. yeah. You were saying, I'm too, too, I'm too two-dimensional, Deborah. Can you fix it? Mm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a moment where his, his young, you know, child bride is talking about his physicality and, and his age, and there's a, quite a difference between their, their ages, the second wife and, and the father. And that, that, for me, was a very, just describing like what, what the physicality of the 69-year-old man is was very touching. And I don't know, for me, that was a moment where I felt like he, he started to come together as a real person with real, you know, not yes. just this little, you know, Casanova who's mm. married this 29-year-old and had a child with her, but, you know, a real so, man. So writers are by, sorry, Characters are biological as well as everything else, and they have metabolisms. So, uh, yeah. And they need new hips, <laughs> and their symptoms are covering other symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's fascinating because it's such an abstract idea for me, psychoanalysis, and it's something that I sort of, as a literary critic, you know, apply to the books that I'm reading. But to actually start thinking about symptoms and how that could actually work as a structuring device or as a literary thematic, I don't know, how did that, how did that come to you or how did you decide you really wanted to write about symptoms and what they're pointing to or not pointing to or covering up? I guess it came from uh, <clears throat> my interest in, as, as, a, as a writer, my interest not in the most articulate person in this room, but how difficult it is for most of us to say what we mean. How difficult it is to actually voice, how we struggle with language to voice the things that are, that are awkward and so symptoms can speak for us, symptoms can step in and chatter and do the talking. They can, not always, but they can. And so it is, as I've said so many times, you know, it, it is always what someone can't say 
that's kind of more interesting than what they can say. So I learned this as a child when I spoke very, very quietly and everyone asked me to speak up all the time and I learned that being asked to speak up doesn't make you speak up, doesn't make you speak louder. <coughs> and that... Um, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Silence is interesting because it, uh, everyone sort of wants to know what you have to say as well. So it's also quite controlling. People who, who, who don't speak at all are not just fragile or shy. I, I believe it's also a kind of, a kind of way of some form of control. So it's who we leave out of stories also that is most interesting. If I tell you all about my dad, you might say, and do you have a mother? So all the, well, that, that whole sort of difficulty with language is always my subject. It was my subject in Swimming Home as well. And I explore it much more, much, much more deeply, if you like, in, in Hot Milk. Sometimes the mother can walk. The mother puts quite a lot of energy into, into not walking. So we, we, we sort of look at that. And then I have two characters, Dr. Gomez and his daughter, Julieta. Kirsty asked me if I would read, Kirsty Gunn asked me if I would read two pages of them. And I based them very, very, very vaguely on, I sort of made Dr. Gomez a kind of shamanic Freud. <laughs> He's a wonderful character. So sort I've of got gold teeth. He has a white cat called Jodo, who he loves more than his patients. Uh, he has a daughter who is a little older than Sophia, who apparently is a physiotherapist, but she takes case histories. And she gets Rose Papasteriadis to, to speak. And Sophia can't quite work out why this is physiotherapy. Here we go, 113 into the book. Julieta Gomez is the daughter of Dr. Gomez, the consultant, and Sophia is driving without a license. She doesn't have a, she's failed her, her driving test four times, but she's driving the hire car in Almeria. And do shout if you can't hear at the back. 
Juliette Gourmet had given me directions to her studio. It was near a small park in Carboneras, so she told me to leave the car in a side street and walk from there. I was driving the Berlingo all the time now. It was easy, apart from getting the gear into neutral, but that wasn't the biggest problem in my life. My main fear was being stopped by the police and not having the right documents. This was another similarity I shared with the unpaid Mexicans who Pablo had sacked and the immigrants working in the furnace of the desert farms. If I was stopped by the traffic cops, in the style of the old colonial anthropologists, I would slip him 13 glass beads and three mother-of-pearl river shells. If that wasn't enough, I would give him a parcel of fish hooks from Bolivia and if he wanted more, I would offer two eggs from Sonora Badella's hens to slip into the khaki pocket next to his revolver. I don't know what I would do. I reversed into a parking space between a car and three bins and knocked over all the bins. Twelve schoolgirls were having a dancing lesson on a wooden stage in the park, which was circled by wilting lemon trees. They all wore brightly coloured flamenco dresses and matching dancing shoes, their hair scraped into tight, severe buns. I watched them clicking their fingers and stamping their heels. They tried not to smile, but some of them couldn't help it. They were about nine years old. Well, they get their driving license, as I never did, and all the other licenses they need to function on Earth. Will they be fluent in multiple languages? And will they have lovers, some of them female, some of them male? And will they survive the earthquakes, floods and droughts of a changing climate? And will they slip a coin into the supermarket trolley, into the supermarket trolley slot to search the aisles for tomatoes and courgettes grown in the furnace of the slave farms? A bulge of purple bougainvillea was growing over the wall of the industrial building that turned out to be Julieta Gomez's studio. It was the last of the three small warehouses at the end of a cobblestone muse. I pressed the bell next to her name. She opened the metal door and led me to an empty room that smelt of oil paint and turpentine. Today she wore jeans and a t-shirt and trainers but her eyes were lined with a perfect flick at the end. The floor was concrete, the walls bare brick, and leaning against them were six paintings and a few blank linen canvases. Julieta told me how to pronounce her name, Julieta. She explained that her full name is Gomez Pena. The reason her father calls her Nurse Sunshine is because her mother died when she was a teenager and she never smiled. It sort of works and it cheers up the patients, she said. I told her that I have often wanted to change my surname because no one knows how to pronounce it. Not one day has gone by in my life without somebody asking me how to spell Papisteriades. But you haven't changed your name, she said, so perhaps it interests you. 
the character of Julieta, I, I love, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to say Julieta or Julieta. I, I read it to myself as Julieta until that moment. But, okay. you know, there's, she's such an interesting presence <coughs> because she's doing these kind of oral histories or, you know, case studies. She's having these characters, you know, Rose and then, and then Sophia goes in and does one too, sort of just talk to her and she records them, yeah? And so, you know, how is this physiotherapy? It's because, you know, the voice actually is physical being or manifestation of something that's happening inside of us, even even if we, we tend to separate voice from, you know, the physical body. Um, and that's something that, you know, that I'm really interested in your work, sort of across your books, from book to book. So I, I, I loved that in this particular um, novel. But so I wanted actually to ask you about Eden Siksu. <laughs> and I, I threatened outside to read a little bit from The Laugh of the Medusa, just a, a short quote. So. Um, do you, if you've read the novel, or if you've read Alex Clark's review of the novel, or if you've just picked it up and looked at it, you'll have noticed that there's a real kind of engagement with Ellen Sixu's essay, The Laugh of the Medusa, and the epigraph is, it's up to you to break the old circuits. So in, immediately we're in the realm of sort of storytelling and, and breaking the narrative and rerouting narratives. And, you know, Sixu's essay is about the importance of women coming to writing and reclaiming their voices and writing in white ink, that's the hot milk of the, the title. But what people tend to overlook is that the, the moment when Ellen Sixu says we must write in white ink, she's just been talking about voice, the actual oral voice, not just the voice on the page, the spoken voice and the embodied voice. Um, I won't, I promise I won't read the Sixu, but I think it's really interesting to, to stop and, and ask you about that, that movement between the embodied voice and the sort of silent voice on the page, especially given that you it began your career as a writer writing for the theater, writing words that were meant to be spoken aloud, to, and then moved into writing prose and poetry, which we traditionally tend to read sort of quietly to ourselves. Yeah. So what interest, interested me about Ellen Sisu is one particular quote, which is that we don't live in a story, we live in history. So that would be true of every one of us in this room. We don't live in a story, we do live in, we do live in history. And in a history that's, continu, that's continuous. And that's why Julieta Gomez is taking case histories. And it's why GPs take narratives. So when you go and say, you know, I have headaches, they say, well, when did they start and how long do they last and, and, um, and all of that. So a history is, is, is being taken. In terms of voice, Hot Milk is written in the first person. It's written, that really shocked me when I first started, when I first started writing because the first person doesn't play to my strengths as a writer. I like a, a third person. I like an aerial view. Uh, I like a sort of poised and elegant kind of view. And when I started to write in the first person, it got hot. It got emotional. It got wild. And I was kind of thinking, oh, I'm not sure I do this. <laughs> But I began to realize that I was going to stick with it. I did have one sort of day where I flipped it. I thought, no, I'd like to go back to, some, to, to elegant poise again. And then I thought, no, you're going right out of your comfort zone. You're going to learn everything the first person can do. So to be in the claustrophobia 
of of the first person of, of Sophia Papistiadis, who who's an anthropologist. She that's her gaze. That's her gaze on everything. On her mum. What's wrong with mum? What's wrong with mum? On on the people that she meets and encounters, and on the jellyfish, which in Spain are called medusas. They're not Medusa jellyfish, they're just called Medusas. And the Medusa enters the story very, very lightly, actually. It's, it's, not a, it's not a sort of major entrance, but we know that the Medusa was, there, there are many versions of it, okay, so this is really very basic, was a beautiful Greek young woman who was cursed by Athena, the goddess of war. So Athena was a patri she was a patriarchal. She served the patriarchy, but she was also the goddess of wisdom and a seamstress, and she and a philosopher, and a mathematician. So in Ingrid Bauer, you might just see some inflections of Athena there. Athena actually curses for all sorts of reasons. We could be here all night because once you go into myth, it's just like going crazy. It just goes on and on. You just, you know, you sort of start to unravel one story and another story comes in to change it. Um, Athena is brought the severed head of the Medusa by Perseus. Perseus is 17 and he's going to kill the monster Gorgon Medusa to save his mother, who is supposed to be marrying a king against her will. So he tricks Medusa, cuts off her head with his sword and brings it to Athena. And here's the really interesting thing about the gaze. Mathi Athena then wears on her breastplate, as you will, as you will see in any statue or any sort of photograph of her, the head of the Medusa. So she needs that curse she gives Medusa, which is to turn anyone who looks into her eyes into stone, is a gaze that she needs in war. So there she is with that, with, with, with that curse is also something she wants, something that's going to help her win a war. So all of that, very lightly, just very lightly, makes an appearance in hot milk. And some of the critics have sort of referred to a line, sometimes they hate it and sometimes they like it. My love for my mother is like an axe. It cuts very deep. And that line references some of that myth. I had to decide how much of it to reveal and I decided that in the end it would sink my book that it didn't sort of add to the pleasure of, of its read so I put in as much as um, as I thought worked for the book but there will be re-readings of the book where you could sort of trace you could trace that that myth mm. Yeah, the, it's an incredibly rich novel in terms of those those materials or those mythologies or those keys that you're working in, and they get sort of 
these motifs that get re-articulated and re-articulated and broadened in different ways. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, but I would like very much to open it up to the floor if there are questions or comments or observations or interventions. I was just going to talk to you about, I love the way you talk about your book as if it's a sort of creature that's running, you know, living a different life almost to you that just sort of pops up and surprises you and I just think that's astonishing and I really like you to maybe talk a bit more about that. Well it's such a relief to have finished it. <laughs> okay what do I, I think my attitude to um, every book I write is um, what's the point of writing a book if there isn't a lot to talk about that is exciting to me because I, I wouldn't stand a chance of exciting you if that wasn't the case and so there, there's that sort of feeling when a book is packed with all sorts of connecting conversations that one that there's a sort of sadness at finishing it of finishing that conversation a book and so brilliant to be able to to continue, to continue the conversation about it. I don't get bored talking about my books. <laughs> I, do, I do find that after a while, I, with Swimming Home, I found that I was repeating myself a lot, and I felt really sorry for people who'd come twice and three times and heard the same, <laughs> heard the same thing, you know. But hopefully, we can keep it alive, and, and, as, um, and as more people read it, I, I really look forward to to extending that conversation. Uh, the artist, uh, Marcel Duchamp, said something really great about art. He said, it's not finished. The, the artist finishes it, finishes a piece, it's 50% finished, and the audience completed. And that's absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah. I've just I've just discovered that that Dr. Gomez perhaps is more of a Jungian. That's going to that's going to give me bad dreams. I'm mean, I, I'm going to have to see think about that. So I'd love to ask you at the end of writing the novel, did writing in the first person leave you in a different place than you expected? Give me a different. Leave you in a different place. Each novel, of course, is different when you finish it, but I'm curious about what you were talking about earlier, about writing in the first person mm. and, and where that took you. Did it leave me in a different place? <clears throat> well, the first person you sort of really, truly inhabit like a ventriloquist, that, you know, Sophia Papisteriades, and the novel does have a kind of sting at the end. I don't think it left me in a different place because the book, you, you know, you end and or whether it's in the third person or the first person, it's, it's found its place, it's found its place. Um, it's a very, very hard tense to write in, I think. The freedom of having many subjectivities in the third person, say, uh, is incredibly enticing, but I can do that. So the challenge in the first person was to move out of the claustrophobia, and the landscape helped me because the landscape, the desert landscape, is huge, you know, huge skies, 
sun-parched lunar landscape, gave plants and desert plants and the cries of the cries of the animals at night. And so actually that was the right that was the right landscape to to rub against the the, the first person. I have two questions. One is what what triggered the book for you? And the other is a bit more sort of down in the weeds. And I was really interested in the visit to Athens and to the father. I mean, the mother is such a dominating figure in the book, but um, I'd love to hear you comment on the relationship with the father and what that meant in, in the novel. Mm. Sophia journeys to Athens. The referendum is, is, is going on. Uh, the financial crisis is going on. The language in the media outside of my book interested me because debt, which is one of the themes in, in uh, Hot Milk, debt was being described as a contagion, an infection, and that we needed to take a bitter pill, um, and the bitter pill was austerity. And austerity was the medication. This isn't even me. I haven't even begun, but I, I, I have my ear to that. So, because language is my subject, right? So. I'm gathering in all of that. What a, how interesting, how interesting this language is. Then I was thinking about the debts that we can't pay back, the psychological debt. So there's no way, so it's a little bit like Sophia is her father's creditor because he can't pay back the, the debt of his years of negligence and, and, and sort of almost a, abandoning her. So she's like, a, she says it herself, you know, she's like a sullen creditor. And who's going to translate if they were going to put them in a room, in a sort of troika situation, who's going to um, translate for them both? So there we go, that, there's that. And then there's his young wife, um, Alexandra, and, and their new baby, Sophia's stepsister. So... Sophia sort of, she kind of works out at the end that Alexandra feels abandoned too and married her father for, for, for good reason because she, I, I don't, I, I'm sort of pausing here because I don't want to give any spoilers. I'm just sort of revealing, you know, all, all of the plot. So, I'm, so I, I think I'll just sort of delete all of that and just say <laughs> de debt. Psychological debt and emotional debt, but the language was all there anyway. It was there to take a ride on. I'm really interested in um, some uh, concern coming out of your essay about kind of voicing hesitancy and uncertainty, and and how it kind of carries through into this book, and also how for me it kind of ties in with. I'm not sure if you've read the uh, chapter from Sarah Ahmed's forthcoming book she put online about. Um, hesitancy and uncertainty and fragility as a feminist a feminist normally trying uh, kind of not wanting to engage with it and she engages with it also in terms of pots breaking which kind of has a resonance with your book so I was, I was wondering if you had any things to share about pots that. Pots breaking, do you mean the vase? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so which, which of Sarah Ahmed's books is that in? Uh, it's, it's one that's not out yet but oh. she's put a chapter online that she's <clears throat> talked about a few times cool. about 
yeah, so uncertainty, hesitancy, and voicing that as feminist acts. Well, we are everything we are. And some of that is, some of what we are is sort of uncertain and, and hesitant and shy and nervous. And um, um, that's such a, I, I really love your question. There's such a, there's so much to say about that. And there's so much to say about that smashed uh, faux ancient Greek vase. But because you three quarters of the way through, I, I, I mean, we can, we can talk about this sort of off. I'm very happy to talk here. I'll answer, I'll answer it much more generally, and it's to do with what I believe the novel's for. In an age of quite brutal corporate consumerism, in which uh, language is often reduced to a sort of multiple choice questionnaire, what can the novel do? What, what, what can it do to counter that? It has to be a home. It's a very good home for the reach of the human mind with all its dimensions and all its contradictions. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.